This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. If you're Carrie Spangler, 2020 sounds different than 2019. Carrie was diagnosed with a mild sloping to profound hearing loss in both ears at age 4, and after more than 20 years as an audiologist, she decided to receive a cochlear implant. It was activated at the end of last year. I had my daughter and my husband with me, and the audiologist and they were talking and all I could think of is I'm hearing beeps and I'm hearing whistles and I'm hearing chirps. Carrie joins us to share what she's learned from her cochlear implant journey. Then we talk to Ryan Kennard of the San Luis Obispo Hearing Center. The hearing center is using a three-pronged service delivery model to meet clients' needs during the COVID-19 pandemic. I ask him how he adjusted his services for reopening safely and he tells me what is working for him and for his clients. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's new resource that's unheard of, featuring a variety of tools developed to help you with practice management, soft skills, and effective treatment. This online resource is available at thatsunheardof.org. When Carrie Spangler's cochlear implant was activated, her reaction might be different than what you would have predicted. Carrie shared a video of that moment with me. In the clip, she is sitting in what appears to be a large conference room. Behind her is a large glass window, and you can see cars driving up and down the road. And you can see wires traveling from the table to her cochlear implant. And we can hear as her audiologist is guiding her through the process. I'm going to turn it on. <laughs> oh, yeah, I hear it. I hear it. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. It's... Somebody else say something. <laughs> Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Can you hear my voice? Yeah. Okay. Um, do you feel something in your eyes again, or is it just a hearing? I no, it's just be like I hear my voice, but it's like just weird. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie chronicles her story on a blog called Hearing Spanglish, a play on her last name, Spangler. I spoke with her about her experiences and how it changed how she thinks about her job. I began the conversation by asking Carrie what she heard during the clip I just played, the moment her cochlear implant was activated. So one of the things I think I just wanted to say is that I have a wonderful support of audiologists who have hearing loss who have received cochlear implants along the way. And they had kind of given me a heads up that activation day may be the worst hearing day of your life. So it's not the same as seeing some of those YouTube videos where everybody's really happy during those videos. But it was a long process and exhausting appointment. And that day I was so excited and I was so nervous at the same time because there was so many thoughts that were going through my head. But I would say the first part of that activation was just figuring out what was the softest and most comfortable levels for each of the different electrodes in the electrode array. So that was just hearing beeps and trying to figure out what a soft sound was and what a comfortable sound was. And then after we figured out all of those for the individual electrodes, the audiologist turned them all on together. So that was really my first hearing moment with the cochlear implant when all of the electrodes were activated at the same time. And I had my daughter and my husband with me and the audiologist, and they were talking. And all I could think of is I'm hearing beeps, and I'm hearing whistles, and I'm hearing chirps. And 
it's really hard to explain something that you, first of all, have never heard before. And then you're hearing through an electronic signal rather than an acoustic signal. So it was pretty overwhelming at first. And to explain that during my appointment was really overwhelming too. So all I could say is that it just sounds weird the whole time. (laughs) We're going to come back to this topic of what it sounds like and how your relationship with the sounds changed over time. But I'd like to kind of go back and get us to the point where the cochlear implant was activated. What led you to deciding to get the assessment that eventually ended up with you receiving a cochlear implant? That is a good question. So I would say the last couple of years, it has been more difficult for me to hear and listen and communicate. And I think most of us don't always want to admit that there's something wrong or or different that's going on in your life. And you might procrastinate how you go about finding out what the cause is. And I would say I did procrastinate for a little while in the sense that I kept thinking, well, maybe my hearing aids just aren't powerful enough, or maybe I'm just not paying attention as well as I should be, or maybe I'm multitasking and that's why I'm missing what people are saying, or maybe people are just mumbling and they don't speak up. So I had all of these excuses of why I didn't want to get tested. But on the other hand, every morning I would wake up and there's a little voice inside my head that kept saying, Carrie, you need to figure this out. You need to go get tested. You need to go see what your options are. And I work with families on a daily basis and their kids who have gone through that process. So I know from a professional perspective, the success that a lot of the students that I have the opportunity to work with have. And so Finally, I think over the last couple of years, every time I had an opportunity to ask questions to whether it's a recipient that has a cochlear implant, whether it was an ENT or a cochlear implant audiologist, I always ask um, those questions. And the seed that was planted kept growing. And finally, I made that phone call to have the consultation done. You had your assessment in July of 2019. The surgery is scheduled for November. You wrote a little bit about your experience in between the two on your blog. At one point you say, I am fearful because I know after getting a CI, I will never hear the same again. I'm excited because I know that after getting a CI, I will hear in a new way that I've never heard before. And you also wrote about experiences where you might be in public, say a restaurant or something, and think this could be the last time that you'll hear like this, meaning wherever you are, that you are aware that the place would sound different after your surgery. And I was hoping you'd tell me a little bit about anticipating this change. Yeah, and I think... My blog, I really tried to write it in real time so that all of those emotions as I was building up to that time would, I wouldn't forget about it. So during that time leading up to the surgery, I really took note about all of those different situations that you were just mentioned. You know, how do I hear in a restaurant and how hard is it for me to hear in this restaurant? Or how do I hear in the car and how difficult is it for me to hear in the car? talking on the phone, listening to music, 
I've always won hearing aids my whole entire life. So I, I didn't want to forget what my normal was. The night before your surgery, you stayed at a hotel near the hospital where your surgery would take place. And you wrote also on your blog that when you woke up, you put your hearing aids in as you had almost every morning of your life. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that moment, the day of your surgery. Yeah, so it was a very nerve-wracking day, of course, with a surgery. But I honestly, I think I had done so much research and thought and prayer about everything that I really felt at peace that morning with the whole process. I felt confident in my surgical team and, and Dr. Oliver Dunker was my surgeon and felt confident with him. I felt really confident in the decision that I had made as far as the cochlear implant center goes. And so my husband was with me that day and we had a really nice dinner the night before and got up and got to the hospital early on in the morning, about 6.30 in the morning. I know my surgery was scheduled for about nine o'clock. The last thing I remember is really looking up at the clock about 9.15 and then about 11.45, I was awake again. Uh, My husband did say about 10.20, he received a phone call from Dr. Adanka saying everything went well. She's in recovery and so you'll get to see her soon. About 1.30 in the afternoon, we were driving back home for my recovery period. Earlier, we heard the sound from a video of when your cochlear implant was activated. And I want to know, in time, how did your relationship with your cochlear implant change? What are some of the things that you could hear now that surprised you? So it's been a journey. It's really a set of lots of different programming and mapping and getting used to along the way. So I know firsthand it was right around Christmas time. So there was a lot of Christmas music that was on the radio and playing in in the home. And um, those are just a lot of music that we've grown up with. So it's familiar music and lyrics and things like that. And um, one of the things that I really noticed was how much I had missed as far as music goes. My hearing loss is really profound in the high pitches. So that's where a lot of music occurs is in the high pitches. So I felt like I had almost a, a splitter cable going to my ears. My hearing aid side had all of the bass going to that side. And then my cochlear implant had all of the treble and the high frequency sounds going to that side. I was hearing so many more sounds with the cochlear implant that I didn't know were there. Another, I think, awakening for me was with our dog. The dog has tags on the collar and I didn't realize how loud those were when the dog was walking around the house. So we had to take the collar off for a little while until I got used to that sound for a bit. So there was just a lot of sounds in the environment that I didn't know were there and I was constantly searching to figure out what is that? What is that? What is that? Microwave beeping, the turn signal in the car little things like that that people 
with normal hearing probably take for granted and don't think about those sounds. But when you're hearing them for the first time, they really stand out to you. You're an educational audiologist. How did receiving a cochlear implant affect how you think about your work? I think it has helped me in a great way with my work. Being an audiologist with hearing loss allows me to offer a lot of empathy uh, in the 20 years that I have been in the field. So I have another perspective that not every audiologist has, especially because I grew up with hearing loss. Getting a cochlear implant has helped as well because it is something that a lot of our families choose to do uh, if they uh, really want their child to listen and hear and develop spoken language and their child has a significant hearing loss, a lot of times the cochlear implant is going to be the amplification that will allow them to have good access to sound. So I'm an open book and my blog, I think, is another avenue that families can look at to see that the process is emotional. Why do you think that is an important thing to note, that that it's an emotional journey as well as a a hearing journey and a a physiological one? Well, I think with every choice or decision that anyone makes in their life, it's going to impact you emotionally. And I think it really opened up my eyes when I became a patient again, and not just a professional of all of the questions that go through your head when you make a decision like that. Because once you get a cochlear implant, it's not like a hearing aid where you can decide, okay, well, this one didn't sound too good, so I'm going to try a different hearing aid. One of the greatest parts of my emotional journey was having others who have gone through the process there for me. And I think that is one of the main things that I would like people to realize, professionals, is that you have to get families or patients who might be thinking about this connected with others who have already gone through that process because they were the people that I could ask any question to, and they all had a different or similar experience or feeling that they went through. So I knew that the ups and downs or the roller coaster of emotions that I was going through were normal, that everybody goes through those. But it's important for families and patients to realize that, hey, it's, it is an emotional journey, and it is okay to have all of those feelings. Carrie Spangler, she wrote the blog Hearing Spanglish. You can go there and read her entire journey of receiving a cochlear implant. Carrie, thank you for your time. Thank you. When we come back, audiologist Ryan Kennard talks about reopening his practice during the COVID-19 pandemic. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's new resource that's unheard of. It's always important to check for blind spots in your practice. That's unheard of features a variety of tools developed to support you in practice management, soft skills, and effective treatment. They're quick and easy to use. Learn more at thatsunheardof.org. 
If you walked into the San Luis Obispo Hearing Center, you might notice a few precautions are in place. You might notice the sneeze guard between you and the staff at the front desk. You might notice a barrier to keep you separated from that front desk. Ryan Kennard is the director of the San Luis Obispo Hearing Center. He shares the building with an ear, nose, and throat, or ENT, practice. As a group, they're adjusting to the COVID-19 world, and they're open for business. But they had to make some changes, and they made them fast starting back in March. Yeah, so the ENTs are partners, and the first day that things really came to bear, we actually ended up with the first case in our county, and we were getting word that San Francisco was closing down and that the city council was meeting that night, and the ENTs elected to cancel all cases uh, that morning. We walked out into the lobby and sat down with the senior partner and one of the other partners, the two ENTs that were on shift that day and sat in a group and just said, so how do we go forward was the first question. And there was a lot of silence and a lot of people thinking. And then I realized everyone was looking at me. And I I realized that it was easy for the ENTs as surgeons to decide what they were going to do going forward. But what they were looking at from me is how do hearing tests go? How do diagnostics go? How does audiology proceed? because those were the variables for them. Ryan has an interesting background. He's worked in acoustics and IT services. He's worked as an audio engineer. He says he used to design sound systems for churches. In the military, he worked with electronics. I mention Ryan's background because he credits this work experience with helping him address reopening his practice during the pandemic. I think the first thing that we did was assess the weak points for infection risk. And we were trying to decide how do we screen patients, which type of appointments are considered essential appointments, which type of appointments are not. And so that was probably question number one is what is essential? What can we cut out to reduce risk? And where were the weak points in the practice? Mm -hmm. What kind of answers did you come up with? Well, the biggest weak points in the practice were probably going to be the confined space in within the booth, which poses an inherent risk for sort of keeping stagnant air and therefore allowing airborne particles to stay for longer. Surfaces can be cleaned, but air is very difficult to be cleaned. Waiting room was a very big weak point because we can't control where people sit, how they interact, how close they get. And then the other major points were the check-in, check-out counter areas where people have a tendency to pause and other people are trying to get by. We have very narrow hallways and that became a big risk for us. To help prevent interactions in the waiting room, Ryan says the ENTs stopped booking overlapping patients. He says they decided to slow down their operations. We didn't want an audiology patient, a hearing test patient, an ENT patient, and another ENT patient all waiting for their appointment at the same time in the waiting room. What can we do as an audiology practice to limit this since we, I would inevitably have patients sitting in the waiting room for an audiology appointment and an ENT patient sitting in the waiting room for an ENT appointment at the same time. Mm, that's interesting. The, the idea that you would both be serving potentially two different types of clients that, that could overlap. Absolutely. And they often do. Um, finally, what was decided for audiology was that we would close the audiology practice in the office wherever possible. So diagnostics would continue only as an audiologist and an ENT both signed off 
And then we would only do curbside appointments and telehealth appointments at first with the audiology practice. That was elected to be a decision not just for our practice, but also to support the stay-at-home order that was countywide. We were considered an essential service, but I didn't think that hearing aid fittings being delayed unless they were a vital thing like a pediatric fitting for newborns or small children were important enough to schedule a patient in the clinic. So we just stuck to the vital things that could be curbside and telehealth. And so now you have this kind of three-pronged model. Absolutely. And we and we have no intention to stop. When you started offering services through telepractice, I'm wondering how your clients responded. Our clients would be probably divided into probably about 25 to 30% of our patients were not open to telehealth services at all. Another probably 30% of our patients, maybe a little bit more than that, were if I can put it in air quotes on a a podcast, um, were willing to give it a try. And then the remainder were gung-ho about it. And we concentrated primarily on a sort of an evaluation. I trusted a lot of this to my patient care coordinator, Jeannie. She discussed it with me, but we were basically determining what was feasible to do telehealth was the first thought process, what type of appointment. Second was kind of a screening process to see how the patient was feeling about it, what kind of hardware and how savvy they were on that hardware. And then while she was evaluating that, which was all during this week that we were shut down, I was going through and evaluating different types of telehealth delivery models, testing them from the patient perspective, more importantly than mine, I can figure out my end, but I want it to be easy and seamless for the patient. And then we kind of came back together and said, okay, I think this patient can do this. I don't think that patient can do this. And we figured it out. Part of my responsibility in this was the ENTs had no idea how to do telehealth. With my IT background, I figured it out. And I that week I spent in IT mode figuring all this stuff out. And then I assume once it's up and running, maybe a little bit of your audio background as well. I have a light ring with a camera on it with a microphone. The ENTs would come by and laugh at my setup because it's very vital that my patients be able to see what I'm saying. And the lighting wasn't perfect in my room. So I was, you know, then absolutely using my audio and acoustic design background to make sure lighting was appropriate and the microphone was appropriate. Absolutely. Yeah. A patient-centered approach, it kind of means something different right now, maybe. It certainly does. And I think probably the biggest part of a patient-centered approach that we need to focus on in post-COVID-19 is, number one, we need to do what the patient feels is safe. That's why we don't plan on ending this anytime soon. And second, we need to make sure with that we're doing something the patient is comfortable with, which means that if they're not comfortable with telehealth or curbside, we need to either be willing to take their hand and guide them through that, or if they can't do it, then we just change the format. At the time we spoke, Ryan said he had returned to seeing a similar quantity and similar type of appointments to what he was seeing before the pandemic, but only 40 or 50% of his clients are in person. And to limit interactions, Ryan says the appointments are scheduled strategically. 
So right now in the audiology practice, we don't schedule two patients in office back to back. In other words, my patient care coordinator has been instructed to make sure that we have a curbside or a telehealth appointment bookending a, an in-office appointment. If there is not a telehealth appointment, then the gap is the same size as a telehealth or curbside appointment. There's a, there's a 15 to 30 minute gap for cleaning surfaces, washing hands, all those kind of things in between appointments and to allow one patient to leave before the other patient comes in the door. We also don't allow our patients in the waiting room if possible. We, we prompt them on the phone with our confirmation call and when they're scheduled, you will need a mask. We expect you to come into the parking lot, call us and let us know when you're here, give us a description of your vehicle. We will come out and get you when it's time for your appointment. Wow. You know, there's a lot that you can do to make sure your patients are safe, but I'm sure you also um, don't want to bring this virus home with you as well. Absolutely. I I have a wife who has been uh, medically immunosuppressed due to autoimmune disease, and I have a four-year-old at home. I have no interest in uh, bringing it home, passing it on to grandmas and grandpas. Uh, More importantly, this can incubate or this, you can be shedding the virus for up to two weeks without any symptoms. I have no interest in getting it from one patient and giving it to 150 more of them. As we're recording this, um, California is continuing to open up. At the same time, they've your state has recorded more than 100,000 cases of the virus. Do you anticipate the state's response is going to have an influence on your business? It influences the way I feel in my business every day. I am much more terrified of a patient walking in with coronavirus and giving it to one of my staff or myself or indirectly their families or other patients now that we are beginning to open up than I was that I was almost the only face that somebody was seeing outside their home except maybe the grocer. Yeah. We hope that eventually things will go back in many ways to a, a way of life that was what we knew before this time. But you've also, you've tried a lot of new things during this time period, it sounds like. And I'm wondering if any of these new things you've tried, if you think maybe that you'd want to incorporate them even at a time whenever we were not quite as conscientious of viruses. I think that uh, you hit the nail on the head when you said not quite as conscientious of viruses. I think that this virus will change for quite some time how our patients feel about exposure. They will feel much more exposed. They will feel much more vulnerable when they are out and about for quite some time, probably after a vaccine is is discovered for this uh, particular disease and the next swine flu or Ebola or coronavirus comes out. So I don't plan to discontinue any of the services that we're offering. I still plan to encourage telehealth when available. I still plan to encourage Uh, curbside appointments for our what used to be called a walk-in clinic and is now called a curbside clinic. Now, if somebody walks in, we take their hearing aids, ask them to go back to their car, and we bring them to them. And I plan to keep that going. I think that this is a service that we offer patients that my patients have mostly embraced. Those patients that don't, they're welcome to come in when things start calming down. And I plan to not cease having in-office appointments. I just want to make sure that what we offer is an expanded portfolio of 
safe, healthy, and open ways of treating patients. It's a quick evolution, though. Absolutely. I think, I think this was coming. I think that telehealth, we had already started talking about it. This is something that would be greatly of assistance in the areas of us being able to counsel patients regarding over-the-counter hearing aids, which were coming uh, in people understanding the benefits of audiology, because this is not something that hearing aid dispensers are going to be able to offer anytime soon that I think of. And we were already looking in this direction as, as a profession. We just didn't know how to implement it. And we were sort of forced into the speed at which we implemented it and looking at it as a viable option. Many people were not, and they are forcing forced to look now. So I don't think this is something that was unnatural. The timing was absolutely unnatural. Ryan Kennard is the director of the San Luis Obispo Hearing Center. I spoke with Ryan earlier this week. He says about 70% of his patients are now in clinic appointments, and the hearing center has taken steps to allow for overlapping appointments. They've increased space between chairs in the waiting area while encouraging patients to wait in their car. And Ryan says his clinic has purchased air filtration systems and placed them throughout the hearing center. You heard Ryan describe his new service delivery formats as he adapted his business to the COVID-19 pandemic. Ash's Government Affairs and Public Policy Department wants to offer a reminder. When considering service delivery formats, make sure to check state laws and regulations and billing and coding considerations before implementing any changes. Find that information by going to asha.org and looking for the COVID-19 updates banner. While there, you can find answers to other questions about how to proceed with services during COVID-19, including setting specific resources. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's new resource, That's Unheard Of. This online resource has a variety of tools to help you with practice management, soft skills, and effective treatment. Learn more at thatsunheardof.org. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.